0: Chapter 13 Life in Frankfurt After months in Eschenrod, Helena and the children yearned for the privacy and comforts of their own home. Please, Mutti, please, let's go home, the children begged. We want to see our cousins and our friends. God can protect us there as well as here. Finally, Helena gave in. They quickly packed their belongings and piled them high onto the three vehicles they possessed, a battered black bike, the baby buggy, and the stroller. Early in the morning, they set out. This time, they couldn't take the train, because large portions of the tracks had been destroyed. They would have to cover the 40 miles on foot. Where are you heading? People along the way asked. Frankfurt. She'll never make it through, the people said. All the roads are blocked by tanks. Helena nodded politely, but inside she was thinking, even if 1,000 tanks are blocking the roads, I'm going to get my children home. If the Lord is with us, nothing will happen to us. They covered the miles at a steady pace up and downhill. The boys took turns riding the loaded bike. Lotta pushed the stroller and Helena followed behind with the baby carriage. The going got harder as the day got hotter. Finally, as they started up a long hill, Lotta had no more strength. Helena called to the boys and Gert came running. Here, he said when he saw his sister's condition, give me that. He gripped the stroller's handles in both fists and with a mighty effort pushed it the rest of the way up the mountain while Lotta clung to the buggy Helena was pushing. On top they rested. Helena pointed downward. Look, she said. Way down there I think I see a house. If we can make it that far, we can get something to eat and drink. And we'll feel better. Encouraged, the children struggled on. When they reached the house, a woman was leaning out the window, calmly watching their approach. Helena greeted her. We are on our way to Frankfurt. I have four children. Could you give us something to eat and drink? We'd appreciate it very much. While they rested in the shade of an apple tree, the woman returned with nothing but a pitcher of water. Now drink, she said, and then go. I don't want strays hanging around my place. Helena was close to tears. They all took a long drink, and even baby Susie drank the water. Then they continued down the dusty road. As night came, they crawled into an empty hay barn and slept. Next morning, they continued hungry and tired. Soon they were exhausted. The sun burned from the sky, causing perspiration to run like water off their bodies. Helena, whose heart beat as if it were going to burst, had to fight for every breath. Lotta's face was swollen and bluish. Afraid of heat-stroke, Helena laid her down by the side of the road in the shade of a wheat-field and quietly talked to her, wiping her face with a handful of cool grass. Don't be sad, she said. We'll just go a little farther, and then we will find another house. There'll be shade where we can rest. Be brave, Lotta. God will look after us. Let's continue just a little farther. They got to their feet and labored on in the unbearable heat along the endless miles. Finally, Lotta called, Mutti, Mutti, I see a house! As they approached, a woman came out. She took one look at them, and Helena cringed inside, waiting for another rebuff. But this woman was different. she come with me, inside the gate here, she said, taking hold of the baby buggy. Rest in the shade while I get you something to eat. Soon she returned with cool peppermint tea and then a hearty vegetable stew with thick slices of farm bread which even Tiny Susie managed to eat. Soon the little family felt revived and continued on with renewed strength. That evening, in the distance, they saw the water tower that wasn't far from their home. Helena knew there was an eight o'clock curfew after which no one was allowed to be on the streets. They'll never make it in time, Helena thought. But on they went, and when the armed guard saw the bedraggled lot, they waved them through. It's still standing, Helena marveled as they turned into their street and saw the apartment building. Miraculously, it's still standing. The windows were all blown out again, but no matter. They were home. Home. Mutti, the children begged, let's stay here and never, never leave again. I promise, Helena sighed. For her own sake, as well as for the children's, it was a promise she desperately hoped she could keep. But as fall came, and then winter, she began to wonder if she would be able to keep it after all. Food was even scarcer than before. Now, in addition to listing fallen soldiers, the newspapers printed the names of people who had died of starvation. Travel was restricted, too. When they wanted to visit Papa's sister Annie and her two children, who lived in downtown Frankfurt, they had to apply for a police pass, which was often denied. Yet they noticed that Nazi members could move about freely. Food, of course, was top priority. Every night at midnight, Helena woke Kurt. Heavy with sleep, he stumbled out of bed and with stiff, purple-blue fingers pulled on several layers of clothes and finally his open-toed shoes. Like the other children, he'd outgrown them and wouldn't be entitled to another pair until spring, so Helena had cut open the toes to give room for the growing feet. After gulping down a mug of hot cafe made out of roasted grain, he stepped out of their temporary basement bedroom into the night. Turning his collar up and digging his hands deep into his coat pockets, he bowed his head against the biting wind and walked through the streets to take his place in the bread line. Other isolated figures, dark and lonely, straggled in from other parts of the town. Eventually, they reached their destination, the line in front of the bakery. Sometimes twenty people long, sometimes fifty, all cold and silent waiting for their daily ration of bread. Two hours later, a sleepy Gert arrived to relieve his brother, and Kurt went back home, crawled into bed fully dressed, and hoped that he could get warm enough to get back to sleep. Lotta would then relieve Gert, and on lucky days the bread would arrive during her turn in line. If there was a delay, Kurt took another turn. Often, when the bread-bearer got home, the heel of the loaf was already eaten. Helena didn't have the heart to scold the hungry children. The stone-cold winter finally gave way to another spring, and as soon as she could, Helena planted spinach in a protected, sunny spot in their garden plot. It soon sprouted. The children knew that it was reserved for the baby who badly needed some enrichment in her diet. One morning, Lotta came home crying from her stint in the bread line. She sat down at the kitchen table still dressed in her threadbare coat. Her wrists were chafed, from the cold, where her outgrown sleeves no longer covered them. What happened? Some of the big kids pushed me out of the line, she sobbed. I had to go all the way to the back. When I finally got to the bakery, the bread was all gone, and I'm so hungry. We still have a little rice, Helena said comfortingly. We'll be all right till tomorrow. Later, she went to the garden to get some spinach for Susie, but found that the little patch had been picked clean. In dismay, she returned home and demanded an explanation. Kurt confessed to having eaten the spinach. What could Helena do? They were all starving. One day, they had unexpected company. Papa's sister, Tanta Annie, and her husband, Uncle Fritz, were at the door. Uncle Fritz was home on furlough. He had been posted to Breslau, where he served in the flak artillery, and he told the family that the fighting there was terrible. I don't know if I'll make it he concluded. They prayed together, and after a few days he went back to his post. It was the last they saw of him. The German forces in Breslau were completely wiped out with no survivors. Uncle Fritz was listed as missing in action. Sometime later, Tanta Annie and the cousins, Anneliese and Herbert, again stood at the door. The previous night, while they were in a bunker, their apartment in downtown Frankfurt had been bombed and completely destroyed. For a few days they stayed with the Hassels, and then they were evacuated to a small town on the Rhine River. Would the horror never end? Helena was assigned a 14-year-old girl to help her with housework. Hitler had decreed that upon leaving elementary school, all girls had to provide a year of free labor as their contribution to the war effort. Tekla was an illegitimate child not wanted at home, and she was glad to be with Helena, who treated her with kindness. However, she had no idea how to take care of a baby in a household, so Helena patiently taught her the necessary tasks. Tekla became very attached to the family and visited them several times after the war. As before, the children went to church on Sabbath instead of attending school, making them unpopular with all their instructors. Gert's math teacher, Herr Neumann, especially took a dislike to his small pupil. Hassel, he snapped. You're defying me. "'You refuse to use the Hitler greeting, and you stay away on Saturday. "'But I know how to get the best of you.'" Herr Neumann arranged his lessons so that Saturday was the day on which he would introduce any new math concept. Then, every Monday morning, he pulled his red grade book out of his briefcase, opened it, glanced at the roster of names, and then called on Gert to come to the board and work the new problems. The first two times, humiliated and frightened, Gert stood helplessly at the board, watching his teacher mark the failing grade, a big six, in the red book, while his classmates snickered. Finally, he adopted the routine that Kurt and Lotta had been following all along. On Sunday, the three chudged to the houses of their fellow students and asked them what the teachers had covered the day before and what the homework for Monday was. Since few of his classmates were very interested in math, Gert usually got three or four different versions. But back home, he took his math-book and studied the problems on his own until he mastered the concepts. The thoroughly unpleasant Herr Neumann had it in for two other boys also, and missed no chance to shame them and mark them down in his hated red book. Let's get revenge, they said, so the three of them watched for an opportunity. On the last day of school, they had their chance. Herr Neumann's left the grade book lying on his desk. Two of the boys acted as lookouts, while the third crept into the classroom and snatched it. What'll we do with it? After a bit of debate, they decided on a ceremonial act of destruction. They divided the tasks and agreed to meet in half an hour on the banks of the River Nida. There they set to work. First, they flipped through the pages and double-checked the grades. They saw the long row of sixes by their names, while other students had scores of one and two. That does it. Someone said, is everything ready? They placed the book in a battered tin bowl, doused it with gasoline, and set it in the water. Standing back, they lit a match and tossed it into the bowl. As the book burst into flames, someone nudged the bowl with his foot, and they watched gleefully as the current carried the hated red grade book downstream. Herr Doring, meanwhile, had renewed his campaign of harassment. Soon, Helena received another letter from the school, even before she opened it, she knew what the visit would be about. She explained her situation to the new principal. a hustle, he responded. You and your family are accused of being Jews in disguise. I order you to send your children to school on Saturday. Helena had been through this before and was firm. My children will not come, she said, and there is nothing you can do about it. God is able to take care of us. He slapped his open hand on the desktop. We'll see about that," he hissed. Arriving home, Helena told her dismayed children the familiar news. Oh, Mutti, Lotta wailed, the children are already making fun of me. They're so mean, now it will get even worse. Don't be afraid, Helena consoled her. God has thousands of angels to keep us safe. He can do a miracle. On Sabbath morning, the family knelt for prayer. Before they got off their knees, the air raid siren sounded. Here comes the bombers, said Lotta. Kurt's eyes opened wide. Five would say fly in the daytime when our flat can easily shoot them down? Then he added excitedly, Mutti, that means no school. Schools cancelled during the raids. Remarkably, from then on to the end of the war, among the incessant nightly air raids over Frankfurt, one happened every Sabbath morning. Tante Curlo was a faithful Adventist member and one of Helena's friends. Her only son had spoken out against the government and had been arrested and deported to the concentration camp in Dachau. Contrary to policy, she had been given permission to visit him there once, and thus was one of the few people who knew about the atrocities committed in the death camps. She knew a little English, so at night she would secretly place her little radio under the bed covers and listen to the news on the enemy station, an offense that would have landed her in the death camp if she had been found out. The German news, of course, was full of propaganda to keep morale as high as possible. More battles have been won, the papers shouted. The Führer makes further advances in the East. Always, always, Germany was victorious. But London's BBC told a different story. When Tante Köhler came to visit, she and Helena would whisper behind closed doors. The truth was that the Allies were battering the Germans mercilessly, pushing them back on all fronts. This can't last much longer, Helena prayed. Dear God, help it stop, help it stop. By now, even people who didn't listen to the BBC knew that the tide was turning. All they had to do was look at the heavens. Every day, like silver birds high in the sky, enemy planes could be seen flying in formation to unknown destinations. Kurt and Gert once counted 1100 planes in one squadron alone. At night, the same thing always happened. First came the reconnaissance planes, flying high and scouting out the evening's targets, then dropping burning flares that illuminated the area to daylight brightness while they slowly drifted down. Because the markers had a triangular shape, the Germans nicknamed them Christmas trees. Then the bombers rumbled over in squadrons of twenty, releasing their death cargo at the same time so that the designated areas were carpeted with bombs. Whenever the evening air raid sirens went off, Helena ran outside to look toward the night sky. Often she saw the dazzling Christmas trees staking out her own complex of six apartment buildings, probably mistaking them for a German army camp located 20 miles away. Then she would start to pray. Our Father, protect us this night. You are strong and powerful. I know that your angels are surrounding these apartments. Keep us safe. As she watched, one by one, the Christmas trees went out. By the time the bombers arrived, their target was no longer marked, and they dropped their loads randomly. Helena and the children huddled in the small basement room, unable to sleep in the inferno and tired to exhaustion. For hours each night, they heard the bombs whistling and hissing as they approached the ground, followed by an earth-shattering explosion. If the hit was close by, the whole building shook and the floor rolled like an earthquake. The air pressure shattered the windows and tore open the doors. If someone hadn't made it to the basement in time, they were hurled down the stairs. Shrapnel sprayed through the air. The bombardments were endless. The constant danger, the lack of sleep, and the cold tore at everyone's nerves. But throughout the entire war, not one bomb scored a direct hit on those six apartment buildings. After extra heavy attacks, Kurt and Gert took the family's wooden handcart and pulled it the five miles into the city center. They had to pick their way carefully through the rubble that littered the streets. Often there were charred bodies, shrunk to a third of their normal size, the remains of people who had fled their houses during a raid and had been burned by the phosphorus bombs. The buildings were still smoldering after the raging fires. Carefully, the boys pulled out beams, doors, window frames, anything else that could burn. Sometimes they found unexploded mines, which they laid aside and continued on their way. They didn't fully comprehend the danger of these devices until one of Kurt's schoolmates got his hand blown off when he handled a grenade. When their cart was loaded, they hauled their take home for Helena to use in heating and cooking. A favorite pastime of the boys became searching the ground for pieces of unusually shaped shrapnel. These were highly prized among the children and could be used to barter for other treasures. Herr Doring continued to plot Helena's downfall. He hatched up a new scheme. Kurt, almost fourteen, was ordered to join the Jungvolk, Hitler's organization for boys between ten and fourteen these young people learned survival skills went to social functions sang patriotic songs and participated in vigorous physical exercises maybe this is a way my son can participate without violating his principles helena thought it sounds harmless and benevolent why antagonize the nazis when we don't have to kurt obeyed the summons and went to the enlistment office after he'd filled out the paperwork he was issued the regulation young folk uniform tan trousers a brown four-buttoned shirt with turned down collar and two patch breast pockets, a brown cloth-peaked cap, a black neckerchief gathered at the throat by a brown leather ring, and a black leather belt, its shiny buckle imprinted with the German eagle clutching the swastika and circled by the bold legend, Blood and Honor. As he listened to the chatter swirling around him, however, Kurt began to wonder how harmless this venture was going to be, strutting proudly in their uniforms. The other boys bragged about future power positions, and how being promoted into the Hitler Youth was the sure route to make it into the esteemed ranks of the SS, Hitler's elite forces. Maybe this wasn't a suitable organization for a young Christian after all. Immediately Kurt was assigned to Sabbath duty. Quietly he made the decision to stay home. There were so many kids that maybe they wouldn't notice his absence. He was mistaken. The Hitler Youth Leader, himself an immature youth of 17, came to the Hassel apartment early one morning. "Frau Hassel,' he said in an insolent tone when she opened the door. "'Kurt plays hooky from civic duty on Saturdays. I am here to demand that he reports this Saturday.' Helena eyed him calmly. "'You cannot tell me what to do,' she said. "'You're only a little older than Kurt yourself. I am his mother, and I am the one who determines where he goes, not you.' The young leader had evidently been watching his superiors, because he behaved exactly as they did. He stiffened. I'll show you who is in charge here, he barked. I'll report you to the party. Then we'll see who is boss. You do whatever you have to do. And Helena closed the door on him. Next time he saw Kurt, the leader hissed. I'd like to kick you so hard you couldn't walk anymore. You think you're so high and mighty. I'll fix you. The response from the party was immediate. Kurt received a hand-delivered letter. He was being drafted into the army for immediate posting to the front. He was to report to duty that afternoon at four o'clock. When Helena read the notice, she had the impression that someone was tapping her on the shoulder. When she spun around, no one was there. She thought she heard a voice whispering, Hurry, hurry, why are you hesitating? The voice increased in urgency. Suddenly, Helena knew what she had to do. Kurt, she said. Get your bike and ride to Eschenrod. Here's a little piece of bread. Put it in your pocket. Can't I take some more food in my backpack? Helena shook her head. You can't take anything along. Otherwise the neighbors will know you are escaping. Kurt took a deep breath and shook his head in bewilderment at these rapid decisions. What about you? They'll come for you. I will follow with the children. Kurt, here Mutti. Kurt, go outside and see if anyone is watching. When all was clear, Kurt set out and quickly disappeared from sight. Helena ran through the apartment, gathering up a few of the most necessary items. With these, she carefully padded the baby carriage. She could not take much. It must look as if they were just taking the baby on her customary afternoon walk. She put Susie in the buggy and gathered Gert and Lotta around her. Stay right here for a minute, she said, and stepped across the landing to a trusted neighbor's door. She knocked softly. The door opened a crack, then wider, and the woman pulled her inside. ''I have come to say goodbye again,'' Helena began. ''We are going to the country, I can't tell you where,'' the woman winked. ''I understand. You just go in peace. If anyone asks me, I know of nothing. I'll keep an eye out for your husband.'' Gratefully, Helena shook her hand. Then she and the children stepped outside. No one saw them leave. Later Helena learned from her neighbor what had happened that afternoon. By five o'clock, the Hitler Youth Leader accompanied Herr Dorring and another party official to the apartment. They found only a closed door. They rang the bell, knocked, and kicked the door. They looked into the windows and saw that no one was there. Just you wait, they shouted in frustration. We'll get you. We'll come back and get you out of bed, you draft dodger. Then you will finally get what you deserve. They rang the neighbor's doorbell. Is Frau Hassel home? I'm sorry, she said truthfully. I don't know where she is. Have you tried ringing her bell? We'll be back tonight and get Kurt if we have to force the door. With a shrug, the woman went back inside. At midnight, they returned. They hammered on the house's door for a while, and again they rang the neighbor's bell. She was ready for them. I have had enough of this, she screamed. It's the middle of the night. Get out of here and leave me in peace. She slammed her door and double locked it. The men banged on the doors of the other apartments, but nobody opened. Enraged, they finally left. All this time, Helena and the children plodded along the familiar road. The miles stretched endlessly. Russian prisoners of war were trudging in the same direction. Living skeletons, their bloody feet wrapped in rags. When Helena stopped to give the children a slice of bread, they watched with burning hollow eyes. Helena took her own piece and gave half to one of the men. He greedily devoured it. As they walked along, one of the Russians, a young man, looked into the buggy. When he saw Susie, he gently stroked her little cheek. Then for miles, he walked beside the carriage holding the baby's hand, tears streaming down his emaciated face and falling into the dust of the road. Helena's heart went out to him. She wondered if he had a baby of his own at home. Dusty and starving, they arrived in Eshenrod two days later. The Joosts, never expecting to see them again, had taken other evacuees into their home. But Herr Straub, the mayor of the village, agreed to give them shelter. As they fell into bed, they wondered what would await them here. This has been a production of Solemn Appeal Ministries. All rights reserved. For more information, please visit us at SolemnAppeal.com or call 1-888-449-1452.